Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, this is Eric with the briefest of housekeeping messages for this week's episode. This episode comes in three parts. The first part is an introduction, the second part a lecture that was filmed years ago, and the third part I'm walking through a PowerPoint presentation done yesterday on April Fool's. Now, I would highly recommend that after you get through section one, which is not very visually dependent, switching to YouTube where the symbols that are being discussed can be seen. It may not make sense to all of you, but I think it will be a richer experience as sections two and three are targeted at the professional community. I hope you enjoy it, and I hope that you can listen to it in the spirit that I don't expect you to understand everything being said, but that there's enough going on thematically that I think it makes for an interesting story. Be well. Hello, you found the portal. I'm your host, Eric Weinstein, and I think that today's must be the most unusual episode yet of a podcast that has been marked by almost regular unusual episodes. Now, this is the first podcast that I'm recording at home. I don't really have a home recording studio, so we're really doing this from chicken wire and masking tape. But I am sheltering in place because of the worldwide COVID pandemic. And what we've been asked by the state of California and by the federal government is to shelter in place for an upcoming month because today is April 1st. Now, during a pandemic, I can assure you that no one is interested in April Fool's jokes. So the question is what to do with the April Fool's tradition in a situation in which nobody wants a prank. I thought that this was probably the best time to launch an idea that I've been playing with for years. And that idea is that it is dangerous to have a world in which we are afraid to talk about what we think is true. When I think about what happened during the beginning of the COVID pandemic, I find that we were in general intimidated from sharing our fears about the virus. We were told that if we wore masks that we were acting in a peculiar fashion. If we refused to shake hands that we were behaving in a strange and unpleasant social way. We did not want to be alarmist. We did not want to be seen as chicken little. And in fact, it was extremely important that we not be seen as xenophobic given that the outbreak was originating in Wuhan, China. In fact, perhaps the most dangerous idea was that this outbreak might have been connected to some research being done in a lab, perhaps a bioweapons lab. We really don't know where this epidemic began. What is the etiology of something that is causing the entire world economy to effectively shut down? What I believe is that that silence has been deadly. We have many people who have now lost their lives because we did not feel free to exchange ideas, to think and to talk and in fact, many of the people who warned us first were the freest members of society, having been previously canceled by standard mainstream institutions and their associated media. So what I thought would be important for an April Fool's Day that no one wants to actually participate in was to deal with an idea that maybe one day a year we should all be free to share crazy ideas that are going around between our ears and in our head 
We're having conversations with ourselves, wondering, is anyone else seeing the same thing that I'm seeing? But we are too afraid because the social stigma for actually believing in things, that maybe things are possible, or perhaps there's a conspiracy somewhere. Perhaps we are ill-prepared. For example, I believe that our current pandemic is exacerbated because our government and our readiness czars failed to stock adequate supplies and that these supplies were called for in the academic literature for years. There was absolutely no excuse not to have personal project protective equipment stocked for doctors and nurses and hospitals to say nothing of all of the people who are in the front lines of treating patients sick with COVID. Now, currently, I don't believe that you can trust the World Health Organization. Absolutely not. I don't think you can trust the Surgeon General of the United States, and I absolutely don't think you can trust the CDC, because they are all covering for our inadequacy. This was a problem that we always knew was coming, and we at one point had stocks which apparently were depleted under a previous administration and not restocked under this administration. In fact, our fear of dealing with a pervasive institutional incompetence has blinded us to the degradation in our society across all major institutions. As I've discussed before on the program, I believe that this has a singular ideology. That is, that because of embedded growth obligations coming from the previous era of unsustainable post-war growth from about 1945 to 1971-73, something like that, we built in expectations to our system that cannot currently be met. We will not have technology that follows the same breakneck pace of innovation. As a result, we have a system whereby the heads of our organizations are forced to cover for their inadequacies because growth is built into the system that cannot be sustained. Therefore, there is not the funding, the manpower, there is not the wherewithal to continue many of our programs because we do not actually have the ability to continue to simply grow our way out at least so far. So what's today's program about? Well, I thought that what I would do is to let go of something that I've been keeping pretty close for, I think about 37 years. When I was around um, 19, I started, it's hard to talk about. When I was around 18 or 19, I was at the University of Pennsylvania and I thought I saw a glimmer of hope. I thought I saw that some new equations that were being played with might actually provide a solution to some of the problems that had bedeviled Einstein and others for years in the quest for a unified field theory. Now, it's an embarrassing thing to say that one is a unified field theorist. It is effectively equivalent to saying, I'm interested in perpetual motion machines, uh, or that I have a uh, private cure for cancer that I'm trying on rabbits in my backyard. However, I actually think that it's important to fess up because that's exactly what this is. Now, in my situation, um, I have an extremely unusual history and I really don't want to get bogged down in all of the things that happened while I was a student trying to develop this theory because it is not a particularly happy story. I believe that this theory is an incredibly joyous one. Now, in this situation, I want to talk about what it means to have a theory of everything. We've never seen one. And in fact, not only have we never seen a theory of everything, we've never even seen, I believe, a candidate for a theory of everything. 
And because a theory of everything would have to have different characteristics than I believe every theory that has gone before, we don't think enough about what the difference is between what we would normally call in physics an effective theory and a fundamental one. Now, if you're familiar with the M.C. Escher drawing called Drawing Hands, it is a lithograph of two hands apparently drawing each other into existence on some kind of a canvas or piece of paper. That is sometimes referred to as a strange loop, but it in fact is an attempt to answer the question, what is the fire that lights itself? This is the problem that bedevils us when we search for a unified theory that doesn't bedevil us, in my opinion, in any previous effective theory. Now, why is that? Well, many people confuse a theory of everything as if uh, they imagine that it's a theory in which you can compute every eventuality. And it is absolutely not that because the computational power is very different than the question of whether or not the rules are effectively given. I've analogized it to a game of chess and Knowing all of the rules is equivalent to a theory of everything. Knowing how to play chess well is an entirely different question. But in the case of a theory of everything, or a unified field theory, if you will, many people also take it to be an answer to the question, why is there something rather than nothing? And I don't think that this is, in fact, what a theory of everything is meant to be either. Now, why is that? Well because I believe at some level it is impossible for most of us to imagine uh, an airtight argument, mathematically speaking, which coaxes out of an absolute void a something. However, there's a different question which I think might actually animate us and um, which is the right question to ask of a potential candidate. And that is, how does one get everything from almost nothing? In the M.C. Escher drawing or lithograph, hands drawing hands or drawing hands, what we see is, is that the paper is presupposed. That is, if you could imagine a theory of everything, it would be like saying, if I posit the paper, can the paper will the ink into being such that the ink gives rise to the pens and the pens draw the hands, which in fact manipulate the pens to use the ink? That kind of a problem is one which is of a very different character than everything that has gone before. It is also, in my opinion, an explanation of why the physics community has been stalled for nearly 50 years since around 1973 when the standard model was intellectually in place. Now consider this, we have never had in modern times a drought where no person working in pure fundamental theory has taken a trip to Stockholm, just as a rough indicator, um, for contributing to the standard model. No one, in my opinion, since, let's see, Frank Wilczek, who was born in 1951, no one born after that time has, in fact, contributed to the standard model in a clear and profound way. That is not to say that no work has been done, but for the most part, the current generation of physicists has, for more than 40 years and almost 50 years, remain stagnant within the standard paradigm of physics, which is positing theories that are then verified by experiment. Now, my belief, which is relatively radical, is that there is no way to get to our final destination using the tools that have gotten us to where we are now. In other words, uh, what got you here cannot get you there. And in particular, one of the biggest problems we have is the political economy of science. 
We have effectively starved our scientific enterprise for resources, creating a dire and cutthroat competition which has completely deranged the scientific tradition. And so one of the things that's going to happen in this lecture is, is that I'm simply going to announce that I have broken and have broken for many years with just about every expectation of standard science. That is not to say that the equations or the style of presentation is going to be foreign, quite the contrary. Uh, I have every intention of writing up some results um, in standard terminology wherever possible using uh, popular mathematical typesetting programs, but it, it goes far deeper than this. My belief is that what we've created is a career structure, a journal structure, an employment structure, an access structure that cannot possibly complete the job. And why is that? Well, what if in the last leg, in fact, we had a situation by which an attempt at the fundamental theory would result almost certainly in career suicide? Now, if you think of that as an explanation, you would realize that it has the power to synchronize failure across many seemingly independent experiments. And I believe that that's exactly what's been going on through the so-called string theory revolutions one, two, and perhaps three. Now, in that case, what happened was a theory became uh, fixed in the minds of really the baby boom generation of physicists because it allowed for infinite elaboration within a mathematical or more particularly a geometric context. And those supposed physicists spent their time submitting papers to what's called um, the high energy section of the so-called preprint archive. But in fact, most of these papers have nothing to do with high energy physics whatsoever. And uh, if you're looking for the, the designation, it's HEP, T-H, High Energy Physics Dash Theory. Now, if you look through those papers, they don't seem to have much to do with particles. They don't seem to have to do with forces in space-time. They seem to have to do with very strange and obscure mathematical issues. And in the years since the uh, string theory program got particularly reanimated, uh, I guess that would be around 1984, with the anomaly cancellation of Green and Schwartz, what you'll find is, is that physics became very active and simultaneously ground to a halt. It, it failed to remain a physical subject. It became something like a medieval quest for the number of angels to dance on the head of a pin. Now, in this circumstance, I think it's very important to realize that this is not a paper and we are not submitting to the archive. In fact, the archive requires people who are not employed at universities uh, to get permission uh, from some member of the community, which is called an endorsement, which I find absolutely insulting and I refuse to go along with. Furthermore, we are expected to cite papers, sometimes which uh, are behind paywalls. And I think that it's absolutely immoral to ask people to pay outside the system to read the papers to cite other people's work. I could go on about the number of things that are currently wrong with the system, but instead what I would like to do is to simply joyously reject it. I have every intention of simply sharing this with you and jealously guarding my right to shepherd this through. Now, what does that mean? In two previous episodes, we've had interactions with academicians, which I think uh, are interesting and bear scrutiny. In the first case, in, a, in an interview with the economist Tyler Cowen, I talked to Tyler about the fact that the Boskin Commission was in fact committing economic malpractice. Now, why was that? 
It was because they had decided that they needed to transfer a trillion dollars over 10 years and that they had found a devious way of doing it, which is to adjust the CPI by backing out the amount of adjustment needed to get a trillion dollars, they decided that a 1.1% overstatement in the CPI would cause a reduction in entitlements, that is Medicare and Medicaid payments together with Social Security, as well as an increase in taxes because tax brackets are also indexed. Now, to my mind, it is absolutely uh, unconscionable to say that you have a right to transfer wealth cryptically by adjusting a fundamental uh, barometer. That would be like saying, in order to meet our global warming targets, we have to recalibrate all the thermometers to show that in fact things have cooled. One simply can't do that in science. But Tyler's response, I found, was very interesting. His perspective was that this was in fact not a terrible thing because it was, quote, directionally correct. And in general, he believed that because uh, the CPI should be considered overstated, that this was not the world's most terrible thing to do as an economist. I respect Tyler a great deal and I enjoy his company, but I have to say that I am absolutely of a different opinion. My belief is, is that one has no rights and no ability as a scientist to fudge the data to meet social goals in this fashion. Another interesting interaction was the interaction with Professor Agnes Collard of the uh, University of Chicago. Now, when she listened to episode 19 about Brett Weinstein, she found that it was a very compelling episode. But strangely, even though the point of the episode was to surface Brett's long forgotten theory, because Brett had not been acknowledged as having predicted that laboratory mice would in particular have radically elongated telomeres, where it was thought that all mice had long uh, radically elongated telomeres, uh, which has incredible um, potential implications for drug testing and all of the work that is done on uh, laboratory rodents as model organisms. This is uh, an episode you should definitely listen to if you haven't already. But Agnes's perspective was very different than mine. Her feeling was that because we were in a situation in which the work actually surfaced, that the system worked even if it was the case that Brett's name was erased from the history of the development and that his theory was uh, put in a situation in which it was not able to carry the day because in fact there was no record of the fact that a prediction had been made. Now I disagreed with Agnes on that program uh, vociferously, but what I found was is that it was very telling. In general, our academic population has given up on the previous and quaint idea of decency, propriety, uh, truth, fairness, because there simply isn't the resource for everyone. Now, I believe the current science is not necessarily unsalvageable, but it will be unsalvageable if we don't get the very people that I rail against far more money. And I know that's very confusing. But my belief is, is that the inadequate resources that we have put aside are very similar to the inadequate masks that we have put aside for our doctors. We have asked some of the world's most gifted and smartest people to devote their lives to the study of science and technology. And we have inadequately prepared them. We've put their lives and their families' lives under incredible pressures. And what I wish to do is to, in fact, point to the very people who I have been most angry at for years and say that part of the problem is that we need to take a hard look at how we've invested in science and technology and give the very people that I'm most angry at more money. 
I will explain more about this later, but I do want to give you an introduction to this episode. What I will be doing is to screen a very unusual and somewhat awkward lecture at the University of Oxford. Now, why is it so awkward? Well, first of all, I had left uh, standard research um, perhaps 20 years earlier, almost. Further, I'm not a physicist, and I have only taken one or two courses uh, in the physics major sequence. I think I've taken one semester of mechanics, and perhaps I took an, an advanced general relativity course in college. But in general, no one goes into a theoretical physics department and attempts to lecture physics physicists on physics. And why is that? Well, because physics is incredibly demanding. And this is almost certainly the world's most interesting and most accomplished intellectual community. These are guys who don't miss a trick. Uh, there are so many things to know, and it is such a difficult field that it is effectively almost impossible to contribute from outside. Chemists don't do it, and once in a blue moon, mathematicians will attempt to talk about actual real physics. So one thing that you're seeing is a very unusual circumstance where somebody is trying to figure out how to give their first lecture in a physics department, and it concerns the possibility of a theory which attempts to solve the problem of how does a fire light itself. Another thing that you'll see is, is that it's relatively difficult to read my handwriting. I'm not going to uh, make any bones about it. I've been very vocal about having learning differences, dysgraphia, dyslexia, all sorts of different issues. Symbols come extremely difficult to me. I don't want to spend this time making excuses. What I do want to say is the following. I will be attempting to record a short um, PowerPoint presentation for after the lecture to say at least some of what some of the constructions are more clearly. This is not meant to be the actual presentation of the theory. What this is, is an introduction, a down payment, and above all, a historical account of what happened seven years ago at the University of Oxford when I tried to present these ideas. I've talked before about the twin nuclei problem and our need to get off of this planet. And if we have a hope of getting off of this planet, it really comes from fundamental physics. You see, 100 years ago, or perhaps 105, when Albert Einstein gave us general relativity, he effectively consigned us for life to the solar system. Why is that? Well, his model, his geometric model of space and time, effectively creates a speed limit known as C, or the speed of light. Now, there are three rocks that are at least interesting for habitation by humans, although two of them are marginal, the Moon and Mars. One of them, of course, is unbelievable, the Earth. But I doubt that we're going to be able to steward the Earth through our new godlike powers, which I've called the twin nuclei problem of cell and atom. We've unlocked the power of both, and I don't think we have the wisdom to stay all in one place. So the question that I had was, if there is any ability to escape to the cosmos that we can see in the night sky, where would it come from? We are almost positive that Albert Einstein's theory of relativity is in some weird way incomplete. The Schwarzschild singularities which give us black holes and the initial singularities of the Robertson-Walker-Friedman universe which uh, are associated with the Big Bang are some clue that there is some subtle flaw in Einstein's theory. So how to go beyond Einstein? I mean, what Einstein did to Newton was to recover Newton as a special case of a more general theory that is more flexible. And in fact, this is the same problem that we have. Because Albert Einstein's theory is so fundamental, we effectively begin every theoretical physics seminar 
with a statement about space-time. In other words, Albert Einstein is locked in at the ground floor. So if we can't get below the ground floor to the foundations, it's very difficult to make progress. This is one of the things that is making it almost impossible for us to go beyond the initial revolutions of the 20th century. Do I know that this new theory, if it works, will allow us to escape? I do not. There's no one who can, can say that, and I don't think I have the skills to develop the physical consequences of the theory, even if the theory turns out to be mostly right. What I will say is that I think that the theory is the first of its kind that I've seen. I believe that in part, what you will see is that at a minimum, it is like fool's gold. It appears to explain why we think we see three, three generations, but it also says that perhaps they aren't really three generations of matter. Perhaps there are only two, even though physicists tell us that there are at least three or perhaps more. I believe that physics tells us that the universe is chiral, that is left-right asymmetric, but the theory is itself not chiral. Instead, it chooses to present a different idea, which is that perhaps chirality is emergent, much the way our hands are individually left-right asymmetric as our pinky is not a reflection of our thumb, but the thumb on each hand is a pairing to the other one, as is the pinky. Now, what does that mean? It means that if perhaps there is matter and there is force that is decoupled from our ordinary world, that that matter might restore the parity or the chirality, um, rather would break the chirality, and restore parity between these two halves, the matter we see and the matter that is missing. There are a good number of other things that happen in the theory. It replaces space-time with what I've termed an observerse. Now an observerse is an unusual gadget in that it's thought of as two separate places where physics takes place, connected by a map. That means effectively that we are in something like a stadium where there, is, there are stands and there is a pitch. And the playing field that we think we see may not in fact be where most of the action is taking place. In fact, not all of the fields live on the same space. So when we see waves and particles dancing around, they may have separate origins in each of the two components of the observers. What I hope to do after this is to gracefully and gradually develop the theory under my leadership. Now, why do I say that? There is a belief in physics and in most fields that the field should behave in a communal fashion and that people should put forward their ideas and other people should joyously build upon them and that the community should be allowed to name uh, the various accomplishments for whoever they say accomplish those things. There's not a way in, <laughs> there's not a way in hell that I'm letting that happen. My experience with this community is, is that it simply can't be trusted to behave equitably given the fact that it is so resource starved and constrained. People simply do not have the freedom to be generous, kind, and accurate as to who did what. Furthermore, there is an incredible premium on cherry topping. That is, who finished something off is considered bizarrely much more important than who found something to begin with. Imagine you located an island and you named the island after the first person who could plant the flag on the top of the highest peak. This is patently offensive and ridiculous. Uh, there's a story uh, years ago about how Hilbert almost scooped Einstein by giving the Hilbert action from which Einstein's equations could be recovered. Really? Not a chance. So if Hilbert came up with the Hilbert action and recovered Einstein's equation, so what? 
I mean, the real theory actually takes place in Einstein and Grossman before Albert Einstein even works out a lot of the flaws in the original theory. It's about the ideas. It's not about the formulas and it's not about racing to the final form. Now, I know that the community won't agree with that, but think about this. What I'm doing is taking an incredible risk. I'm addressing you here on April Fool's Day, and I'm saying that if there is a fool, it is certainly me, because I have sat on this theory for almost 40 years. Now, I've never known. Is it true? Is it false? It's impossible to tell when you're only talking to yourself. But in this situation, what I've done is, is I've taken a tremendous amount of risk. And now I'm trying to share it with you. Hopefully, I know that, well, Newton did his greatest work when he was sheltering, sheltering from a great plague uh, in England. And I would like to think that perhaps whether or not this is correct, simply the act of somebody trying earnestly to share hope and some path forward uh, would be uplifting. Now, under the worst circumstances, if this doesn't work, what do I think? This is a question I'm asked frequently. And there are two things that I'll say. Many years ago, around 1987, uh, I put forward some equations that I thought might become my thesis at the uh, Harvard Department of Mathematics, and they were disallowed for a variety of reasons. Those equations were later discovered in, I believe, 1994, and I sat in a lecture in which I saw these equations go up on a board at the very end at MIT. And I looked at those equations and I said, huh, those are the exact equations I was told could never work. Why is the leading physicist in the world placing them on the board and saying that these are the equations from which all of something called Donaldson theory can be derived? What I'm giving you, at least at a minimum, had the ability years earlier um, to provide those equations from a different source. There's something called Cyberg-Witten theory, which I have no claim on. But the actual equations that are called the Cyberg-Witten equations came originally uh, as an outgrowth from investigations of this theory. So at a bare minimum, the Cyberg-Witten revolution should have happened at Harvard rather than Princeton. And it should have been recognized that this theory was capable of at least at a minimum giving birth to that as a side project. The other thing that I think is incredibly important is, is that we've never seen how a universe that looks like ours could possibly emerge from almost no assumptions whatsoever. And I believe that even if this theory were to turn out to be wrong, which I don't think is likely, I believe that it would give us something to go on. We would at least have a first candidate of how a hopeful theory of everything would look and how it would go wrong. So under any circumstance, I think that I'm going to be fine if the theory doesn't work out. I will have at least taken my shot on goal. And I think that that's probably more than almost anyone can ask from a life to attempt to make contact with the deepest question that we've ever had, which is what is this place and what brought it into being? Lastly, I want to just talk about a personal aspect of this, which is what does it mean to come to an end? Whether or not this theory in fact does what I claim, I think it does, uh, I don't know, but I do know that sooner or later, in the era of intercontinental land exploration, someone found the last landmass, and that must have been a very strange moment when there was nothing left to do. I think whether or not this theory in fact accomplishes that is one question, 
But we all have to plan for what it is that we think will happen when man at last learns his own source code. In fact, this was the last edge question that I answered for John Brockman, which is, does something unprecedented happen when man at last learns his own source code? I don't know the answer to this, but I want to return to the same spirit that I started this when I was 18 or 19, which is that of joyous investigation, of brave, open-hearted uh, undertakings. And I also want to bring back a different style of scientific investigation. There has been far too much communalism. In fact, there is a belief that there are no lone researchers and that everything is produced by a community. And pardon my French, but this is absolute horseshit. Um, I've been so long alone with these uh, principles, equations, and ideas that I don't even know what my adult life will look like once I disgorge them and I begin to talk about them with the community at large. I've talked to many theoretical physicists who've taken some interest in them, but I've never put out enough to absolutely ensure that people are seeing what it is that I'm seeing. So whether or not the April Fool's joke is on me, I cannot tell you, but I can promise you that I'm not trying to play one on you. What I hope to show you is a lecture that was the first of three versions of this lecture that were delivered in Oxford uh, over the course of a week. And one of the things that has held me back is, is that I have a great number of people who I have to thank for effectively being my underground railroad when my career got into serious trouble to make sure, who made sure that I always had um, an opportunity to fight another day. And some of the most important of those people, one of whom occurs on this video, um, is Marcus de Sotoy. And Marcus, I just wanted to say thank you for your bravery, your courage, your friendship, and your encouragement. I know I've been absolutely impossible to you. I've made you wait for this, and uh, I just want to say how much I love you. I also want to thank Isidore Singer for effectively saving me um, from not getting a PhD by, I think, putting pressure on the Harvard department and um, for coming to my assistance and making sure that I got a postdoc at MIT uh, despite not having any publications at all. I'd like to thank Raoul Bott, who's no longer with us, who I should have invited to my wedding. I was very angry at him, but I didn't realize that he was saving me in a very difficult situation against a department that probably just wanted to see me gone. I'd like to thank Peter Thiel, uh, one of my closest friends who's like a brother to me, for allowing me these seven years since this lecture to lick my wounds, to get strong, to have a 401k, to buy a house, and uh, to begin coming back to regular society after a very difficult and strained career. I'd like to thank Adil Abdulali and Michael Grossberg, uh, the two greatest best friends from college a guy could have. I'd like to thank my grandfather, Harry Rubin, who believed in things that couldn't possibly be true and made some of them happen. I'd like to thank my parents, Karen and Les Weinstein, for all the good things that they did. I'd like to thank my brother, Brett Weinstein, and his family, Heather and the kids, for sticking by me. And I'd like to thank my in-laws in Bombay, India. I hope you guys are well. And lastly, I would very much like to thank my wife and my two kids for putting up with a lot of lost weekends, a lot of lost vacations, and believing that just maybe there was something to this and sticking by me all these years. So 
I hope everybody really uh, enjoys this. It may not be comprehensible. And after this video finishes, I'll do a short presentation of some of the constructions that took place. Not all of the equations and things, which I think some of them were sort of botched on the board because they became disoriented the night before um, and rearranged things in a way that probably wasn't optimal. But I, uh, I'll attempt to clarify these things going forward and to begin to present the theory as I see whether or not I can bring myself to once again work on it somewhat close to full time as a 54-year-old father of two. So sit back, relax, and coming up next is the first of my three lectures at Oxford University on geometric unity. Be well. At this point, we would highly recommend switching over to the YouTube version of this week's episode to get the full visual experience for sections two and three. Well, welcome to this um, special Simoni lecture. Uh, my name is Marcus de Sotoy. I'm a professor of mathematics here and the Simoni professor for the public understanding of science. And Charles Simoni prepared a manifesto when he endowed this chair to guide the holder of the professorship in their mission. And I'd like to read one part of that manifesto to you. Um, it said, scientific speculation, when so labeled, and when the concept of speculation and its place in the scientific method has been made clear to the audience, can be very exciting. It is a very effective communication tool, and it is by no means discouraged. And it is in the spirit of this part of my mission as a Simone professor that I would like to introduce today's Simone special lecture. I first met Eric Weinstein when we were both postdocs at the Hebrew University just over 20 years ago, and I had the feeling then that he was working on something big. But it wasn't until two years ago that Eric met me in a bar in New York, and we began, he began to explain the mathematics that he'd been working on in private for the last 20 years. As he took me through the equations he had been formulating, I began to see, emerging before my eyes, potential answers to many of the major problems in physics. It was an extremely exciting, daring proposal, and also mathematically so natural that it started to work its magic on me. Over the last two years, I have had the privilege of being taken through the twists and turns of Eric's ideas. After our postdocs in Israel, while I went the academic route, getting my professorship here in Oxford, Eric went a more independent route, working in economics, government, and finance. So he comes here today as something of an insider and an outsider, a difficult place from which to propose bold ideas. But having spent time seeing how powerful these ideas appear to be, I felt that it was time that Eric shared his ideas more widely as I believe his perspective could give the scientific community a new story to explain some of the big questions on the scientific books. I'm therefore very happy to provide a platform here in Oxford for Eric to share his ideas on a new theory he calls geometric unity. The lecture will be approximately 70 minutes after which we will have um, a period to ask questions. Eric. So it's, well, uh, it's a great pleasure to be here in Oxford. Uh, for those of you who are not aware, um, it is possible that no other university in the world has kept so tightly uh, and kept the faith for so long with uh, Einstein's great vision of 
a final theory for physics as a theory of pure geometry, a sort of elegance and simplicity of the highest order. And the names that are associated with Oxford that uh, weigh heavy on me are Atiyah, Penrose, Siegel, Woodhouse, Hitchin. It's a very long list of people who, uh, even when fashion uh, did not hold those ideas in favor, uh, always kept the faith that there was much to be learned from the geometric perspective on physics. Of course, unified field theory, in some sense, acquired a stigma with Einstein's failure to find it in the sense that even someone like Einstein uh, being tempted by the siren song of geometry uh, might lose their footing and go astray. And in the years since, we've had a replacement theory, which is that what is really calling our generations is the, is the quest to quantize general relativity and gravity. And I'd like to, to go back to the sort of earlier perspective, that um, there is no evidence to date, in my mind, that we are being called to quantize general relativity directly. Uh, in fact, there's been more effort spent on that quest uh, without very tangible results than Einstein spent as one man searching for years for unified field theory. So we have to, in some sense, begin to undo some of what we think we know in order to truly reconsider and allow me to put some of these ideas before you today. Marcus asked me to begin presenting uh, these ideas here. And hopefully this is a first opportunity, but if the ideas are not good, um, then uh, lighting on the aisles will lead you to safety and your exits may be behind you. But uh, in the event of a good flight, uh, hopefully this will begin a conversation rather than end one. I feel in some sense that I'm presenting the works of another man, a younger man, uh, someone who came of age right in the middle of the great string theory boom uh, with the anomaly cancellation in 1984. And I look at this work and I see a young person struggling with the idea, why can't I see that string theory is going to answer all of these questions over the next 10 years, as we were told at the time, and making a very dangerous decision, which was, I think I'm not going to follow that particular path and I'm going to follow another. And it's not clear where this path is going to lead us, but we're going to explore it today and see um, as best we can. So in some sense, I've been able to polish some of that young man's work, but I'm also struggling to reconstruct it because as someone spending full time on that theory, he knew a lot of things that I no longer know. So with that uh, as a beginning, I'm just going to say one disclaimer, which is that this is not a usual talk. And whatever contract a speaker usually has with the audience, uh, right now we're going to break that contract. This is a, con this is a talk about ideas. And some of these ideas are bold. Some of them may offend some people because there's a sense that you don't have a right to be considering those ideas. But I go back to the admonition of Jim Watson that said, if you're going to try to make progress, big progress, you are by definition unqualified to be doing whatever it is that you're doing. So in that spirit, let us begin. What is physics to physicists today? How do they see it different from the way in which we might imagine the layperson sees physics? Ed Witten was asked this question in a talk he gave on physics and geometry many years ago. And he pointed us to three fundamental 
insights, which were his big three insights in physics. And they correspond to the three great equations. So the first one is, is that somehow physics takes place in an arena. And that arena is a manifold X together with some kind of semi-Ramanian metric structure. Something that allows us to take length and angle so that we can perform measurements at every point in this space-time or higher dimensional structure, leaving us a little bit of headroom. The equation most associated with this is the Einstein field equation. Of course, I've run into the margin. So it says that a piece of the Riemann curvature tensor, the Ricci tensor, minus an even smaller piece, the scalar curvature multiplied by the metric, is equal, or plus the cosmological constant, is equal to some amount of matter and energy, the stress-energy tensor. So it's intrinsically a curvature equation. The second fundamental insight, I'm going to begin to start drawing pictures here as well. So if this is the space-time manifold, the arena, the second one concerns symmetry groups, which cannot necessarily be deduced from any structure inside of the arena. They are additional data that come to us out of the blue without explanation. And these symmetries form a non-abelian group, which is currently SU3 color cross SU2 weak isospin cross U1 weak hypercharge, which breaks down to SU3 cross U1, where the broken U1 is the electromagnetic symmetry. This equation is also a curvature equation, the corresponding equation. And it says that this time the curvature of an auxiliary structure known as a gauge potential when differentiated in a particular way, is equal, again, to the amount of stuff in the system that is not directly involved in the left-hand side of the equation. So it has many similarities to the above equation. Both involve curvature. One involves a projection or a series of projections. The other involves a differential operator. The third point surrounds the matter in the system. And here we have a Dirac equation, again coupled to a connection, 
But one of the great insights is, is that the reason for the lightness of matter in the natural mass scale of physics has to do with the fact that this psi really should have two components and the differential operator should map to one component on the other side of the equation, but the mass operator should map to another. And so if one of the components is missing, if the equation is intrinsically lopsided, chiral, asymmetric, then the mass term and the differential term have difficulty interacting, which is sort of overcompensating for the mass scale of the universe. So you get to a point where you actually have to define a massless equation. But then just like overshooting a putt, it's easier to knock it back by putting in a Higgs field in order to generate an as-if fundamental mass through the Yukawa couplings. Let me, for consistency. So matter is asymmetric and therefore light. And then interestingly, he went on to say one more thing. He said, of course, these three central observations must be supplemented with the idea that this all takes place treated in quantum mechanical fashion, or quantum field theoretic. So it's a bit of a, an aftermarket modification rather than, in his opinion at the time, one of the uh, core insights. I actually think that that's in some sense about right. Now, one of the, my differences with, with the community in some sense is that I question whether the quantum isn't in good enough shape that we don't know whether we have a serious quantum mechanical problem or not. We know that we have a quantum mechanical problem, a quantum field theoretic problem, relative to the current formulations of these theories. But we know that in some other cases, the quantum becomes incredibly natural, sometimes sort of almost magically uh, natural. And we don't know whether the true theories that we will need to be generalizing, in some sense, have beautiful quantum mechanical treatments, whereas the effective theories that we're dealing with now may not survive the quantization. So what I want to do is I want to ma imagine a different sort of incompatibility. So let's take our great three theories and just visually treat them as the vertices of a triangle. So I'm going to put general relativity in Einstein's formulation. And I'm going to put the, I probably won't write this again, Yang, Mills, Maxwell, Anderson, Higgs theory uh, over here. And I'm going to write the Dirac theory What I want to explore is the incompatibilities not at the quantum level, but the geometric input. All three of these are geometric theories. And the question is, what are the compatibilities or incompatibilities at the level of geometry before the theory is treated quantum mechanically? Well, in the case of Einstein's general relativity, we can rewrite the Einstein theory by saying, 
that there is a projection map due to Einstein of a curvature tensor, where I'm going to write that curvature tensor as I would in the Yang-Mills theory. That should be an LC for Levi-Civita. So the Einstein projection of the curvature tensor of the Levi-Civita connection of the metric on this side. And on this side, I'm going to write down this differential operator, the adjoint of the exterior derivative coupled to a connection. And you begin to see that we're missing an opportunity potentially. What if the FAs were the same in both contexts? Then you're applying two separate operators, one zeroth order and destructive in the sense that it doesn't see the entire curvature tensor, the other inclusive but of first order. And so the question is, is there any opportunity to do anything that combines these two? But the problem is, is that the hallmark of the Yang-Mills theory is the freedom to choose the data, the internal quantum numbers that give all the particles their personalities beyond the mass and the spin. Addition to all of that freedom is some means of taking away some of the redundancy that comes with that freedom, which is the action of the gauge group. Now, we can allow the gauge group of symmetries to act on both sides of the equation. But the key problem is, is that if I act on connections on the right and then take the Einstein projection, this is not equal to first taking the projection and then conjugating with the gauge action. So the problem is, is that the projection is based on the fact that you have a relationship between the intrinsic geometry, if this is an add-value two-form, the two-form portion of this and the adjoint portion of this are both associated to the structure group of the tangent bundle. But the gauge rotation is only acting on one of the two factors yet the projection is making use of both of them. So there is a fundamental incompatibility, and the claim that Einstein's theory is a gauge theory relies more on analogy than on an exact mapping between the two theories. What about the incompatibilities between the Einstein theory of general relativity and the Dirac theory of matter? I was very struck that if we're going to try to quantize gravity and we associate gravity with the spin two field, g mu nu, we actually have a pretty serious problem, which is if you think about spinners, electrons, quarks, as being waves in a medium, and you think about photons as being waves in a different medium, photons' medium does not depend on the existence of a metric. One forms are defined whether or not a metric is present, yet spinners are not. So if we are going to take the spin two g mu nu field to be quantum mechanical, 
if it blinks out and does whatever the quantum does between observations, in the case of the photon, it's saying that the waves may blink out, but the ocean need not blink out. In the case of the Dirac theory, it is the ocean, the medium in which the waves live, that becomes uncertain itself. So even if you're comfortable with the quantum, to me, this becomes a bridge too far. So the question is, how do we liberate the definition How do we get the metric out from its responsibilities? It's been assigned far too many responsibilities. It's responsible for a volume form, for differential operators. It's responsible for measurement. It's responsible for being a dynamical field, part of the field content of the system. Lastly, we have the compatibilities and incompatibilities between Yang-Mills and, and the Dirac theory. These may be the most mild of the various incompatibilities, but it is a, an incompatibility of naturality. Where the Dirac field, Einstein's field, and the connection fields are all geometrically well-motivated, we push a lot of the artificiality that we do not understand into the potential for the scalar field that gives everything its mass. So we tend to treat it as something of a mysterious fudge factor. So the question is, if we have a Higgs field, why is it here, and why is it geometric? It has long been the most artificial sector of our models. The proposal that I want to put to you today is that one of the reasons that we may be having trouble with unification is, is that the duty, our duty, may be to generalize all three vertices before we can make progress. That's daunting because in each case, it would appear that we can make an argument that this, that, and the other vertex are the simplest possible theories that could live at that vertex. We know, for example, the Dirac operator is the most fundamental of all the elliptic operators in Euclidean signature generating all of the Tia Singer theory. We know that Einstein's theory is, in some sense, a unique spin two massless field capable of communicating gravity, which can be arrived at from field theoretic rather than geometric considerations. And in the Yang-Mills case, it can be argued that the Yang-Mills theory is the simplest theory that can possibly result, where we're taking the simplest Lagrangian in the Einstein case, looking only at the scalar curvature. In the Yang-Mills case, we have no substructure, and so we're doing the most simple-minded thing we can do by taking the norm square of the curvature and saying, whatever the field strength is, let's measure that size. So if each one of these is simplest possible, doesn't Occam's razor tell us that if we wish to remain in geometric field theory, that we've already reached bottom and that what we're being asked to do is to abandon this as merely an effective theory? That's possible. And I would say that that, in some sense, represents a lot of conventional wisdom. But there are other possibilities. There are other possibilities that while each of these may be simplest in its category, they are not simplest in their interaction. For example, we know that Dirac famously took the square root of the Klein-Gordon equation 
to achieve the Dirac equation. He actually took two square roots, one of the differential operator and another of the algebra uh, on which it acts. But could, not, could we not do the same thing by reinterpreting what we saw in Donaldson theory, in Chern-Simons theory, and finding that there are first-order equations that imply second-order equations that are nonlinear and in the curvature? So let's imagine the following. We replace the standard model with a true second-order theory. We imagine that general relativity is replaced by a true first-order theory. And then we find that the true second-order theory admits of a square root and can be linked with the true first-order theory. This would be a program for some kind of unification of Dirac's type, but in the force sector. The question is, does this really make any sense? Are there any possibilities to do any such thing? So what I'd like to do is I'd like to talk a little bit about what the geometric unity proposal is. So we have a division into intrinsic theories and auxiliary theories. between physics and mathematics, more specifically geometry. An intrinsic physical theory would be general relativity. An auxiliary physical theory would be the Yang-Mills theory with the freedom to choose internal quantum numbers. At the mathematical level, an intrinsic theory would be, let's be a little fastidious, the older semi-Ramanian geometry, the study of manifolds with length and angle. But auxiliary geometry is really what's taken off of late since the revolution partially begun at Oxford when Isinger brought insights from Stony Brook to the UK. And so we're going to call this fiber bundle theory or modern gauge theory. Geometric unity is the search for some way to break down the walls between these four boxes. What's natural to one theory is unnatural to another. Semi-Ramanian geometry is dominated by these projection operators as well as the ability uh, to use the Levi-Civita connection. Now, some aspects of this are less explored. Torsion tensors are definable in semi-Ramanian geometry, but they are not used to the extent that you might imagine. In the case of fiber bundle theory, the discovery of physicists that the gauge group was fantastically important um, came as something of a shock to the mathematicians who had missed that structure uh, and have since exploited it to great effect. So what we'd like to do is we'd like to come up with some theory that is intrinsic but allows us to play some of the games that exist in other boxes. How can we, how can we try to have our cake, eat it, uh, and use all the full suite of techniques that are available to us. So our perspective is, is that it is the quantum that may be the comparatively easy part, and that the unification of the geometry, which has not occurred, 
may be what we're being asked to do. So let's try to figure out what would a final theory even look like. When I was uh, a bit younger, I remember reading this question of Einstein, which he said, I'm not really interested in some of the details of physics. What really concerns me is whether the creator had any choice in how the world was constructed. And some people may have read that as a philosophical statement, but I took that as an actual call for a research program. So I'd like to describe that research program and try to unpack what I think he was saying. We talk a lot about unification, but we hardly ever actually imagine if we had a unified theory, what would it look like? Let us imagine that we cannot figure out the puzzle of why is there something rather than nothing. But if we do have a something, that that something has as little structure as possible, but it still invites us to work mathematically. So to me, the two great theories that we have mathematically and in physics are calculus and linear algebra. If we have calculus and linear algebra, I'm going to imagine that we have some manifold, at least one of dimension four. But it's not a space-time. It doesn't have a metric. It's not broken down into two different kinds of coordinates, which then have some bleed into each other, but still maintains a distinction. It's just some sort of flabby proto-space-time. And in the end, it's got to fill up with stuff and give us some kind of an equation. So let me write an equation. So I have in mind differential operators parameterized by some fields omega, which when composed are not of second order, if these are first order operators, but of zeroth order, and some sort of further differential operator saying that whatever those two operators are in composition is in some sense harmonic. Is such a program even possible? So if the universe is, in fact, capable of being the fire that lights itself, is it capable of managing its own flame as well and closing up? What I'd like to do is to set ourselves an almost impossible task, which is to begin with this little data in a sandbox, to use the computer science concept. So if here's physical reality, Standard physics is over here. We're going to start with a sandbox. And all we're going to put in it is x4. And we're going to set ourselves a straight-jacketed task of seeing how close we can come to dragging out a model that looks like the natural world that follows this trajectory. While it may appear that that is not a particularly smart thing to do, I would like to think that we could agree that it is quite possible 
that if that were to be the case, we might say that this is what Einstein meant by a creator, which was his anthropomorphic concept for necessity and elegance in design, having no choice in the making of the world. So with that, let us begin to think about what we mean today by geometric unity. GU comes in four flavors, but I'm only getting one shot to do this, so I'm going to do the most exciting of them to me. There's a completely exogenous flavor. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take the concept of observation, and I'm going to break the world into two pieces, a place where we do our observation and a place where most of the activity takes place. And I'm going to try to do this without loss of generality. So in this case, we have x4, and it can map into some other space. And we're going to call this an observerse. The idea of an observerse is a bit like a stadium. You have a playing field and you have stands. They aren't distinct entities, they're coupled. And so fundamentally, we're going to replace one space with two. Exogenous model simply means that u is unrestricted, although larger than x4. So any manifold of four dimension higher that is capable of admitting x4 as an immersion. The next model we have is the bundle theoretic, in which case u sits over x as a fiber bundle. The most exciting, which is the one we'll deal with today, is the endogenous model, where x4 actually grows the space u where the activity takes place. So we talk about extra dimensions, but these are in some sense not extra dimensions. They're implicit dimensions within x4. And last, to proceed without loss of generality, we have the tautological model. In that case, x4 equals u. And the immersion is the identity. And without loss of generality, we simply play our games on one space. OK? Now, we need rules. And the rules are, sorry. OK. Feedback. Um, no choice of fundamental metric. So we imagine that Einstein was presented with a fork in the road, and it's always disturbing not to follow Einstein's path. But we're, in fact, going to turn Einstein's game on its head and see if we can get anywhere with that. Right? It's, it's also a possibility that because Einstein's theory is so perfect that if there's anything wrong with it, it's very hard to unthink it because everything is built on top of it. So let's make no choice of a fundamental metric. And in fact, let's go more ambitious. And let's say we're going to reverse the logic of Einstein. Einstein, the metric is fundamental, but the Levy-Civita connection from which we deduce the curvature is emergent. Right? So the fundamental theorem of Ramanian geometry is, is that every connection uh, causes, uh, every metric causes a, a connection to emerge. And then the curvature is built on the connection. We turn this around. We imagine we're looking for a connection, and we wish it to build a metric because connections are amenable to quantization in a way that metrics are not. The next point is that we always want to have a plan to return to finite dimensions without losing sight of the quantum. And lastly, we want to liberate matter from its dependence on the metric for its very ex existence. 
So we now need to build fermions onto our four-dimensional manifold in some way without ever choosing a metric, if we're even to have any hope of playing a game involving matter starting from this perspective of no information other than the most bare information. Let's get started. We take x4. We need metrics. We have none. We're not allowed to choose one. So we do, we, the standard trick is we choose them all. So we allow u14 to equal the space of metrics on x4 pointwise. Therefore, if we propagate on top of this, let me call this the projection operator, if we propagate on u14, we are in some sense following a Feynman-like idea of propagating over the space of all metrics, but not at a field level, at a pointwise tensorial level. Is there a metric on U14? Well, we both want one and don't want one. If we had a metric from the space of all metrics, we could define fermions. But we would also lock out any ability to do dynamics. We want some choice over what this metric is, but we don't want full choice because we want enough to be able to define the matter fields to begin with. It turns out that if this is X4, and this is this particular endogenous choice of U14, we have a 10-dimensional metric along the fibers. So we have a G10 mu nu. Further, for every point in the fibers, we get a metric downstairs on the base space. So if we pull back the cotangent bundle, we get a metric G4 mu nu on pi star of the cotangent bundle of x. We now define the chimeric bundle, right? And the chimeric bundle is the direct sum of the vertical tangent bundle along the fibers with the pullback, which we're going to call the horizontal bundle, from the base space. So the chimeric bundle is going to be the vertical tangent space of 10 dimensions to u, direct sum, the four-dimensional cotangent space, which we're going to call horizontal to u. And the great thing about the chimeric bundle is, is that it has an a priori metric. It's got a metric on the 4, a metric on the 10, and we can always decide that the two of them are naturally perpendicular to each other. Furthermore, it is almost canonically isomorphic to the tangent bundle or the cotangent bundle because we either have 4 out of 14 or 10 out of 14 dimensions on the nose. So the question is, what are we missing? And the answer is that we're missing exactly the data of a connection. So this bundle, chimeric, C, we have C is equal to the tangent bundle of U up to a choice of a connection theta. And this is exactly what we wanted. We have a situation where we have some field on the manifold x in the form of a connection, which is amenable, more friendly to quantization, which is now determining a metric, turning around the Levi-Civita game. And the only problem is, is that we've had to buy ourselves into a different space than the one we thought we wanted to work on. But now, as theta changes, the fermions are defined on the chimeric bundle, and it's the isomorphism from the chimeric bundle to the tangent bundle of 
of the space U, which is varying, which means that the fermions no longer depend on the metric. They no longer depend on the theta connection. They are there if things go quantum mechanical, and we've achieved our objective of putting the matter fields and the spin one fields on something of the same footing. But, and I want to emphasize this, one thing most of us, do, we think a lot about final theories and, and about unification, but until you actually start daring to try to do it, you don't realize what the process of it feels like. Now, try to imagine conducting your life where you have no children, let's say, and no philanthropic urges. What you want to do is you want to use all of your money for yourself and die penniless, right? Like a perfect finish. Assuming that that's what you wanted to do, it would be pretty nerve-wracking at the end, right? How many days left do I have? How many dollars left do I have? This is the process of unification in physics. You start giving away all of your most valuable possessions, and you don't know whether you've given them away too early, whether you've husbanded them too long. And so in this process, what we've just done is we've started to paint ourselves into a corner. We got something we wanted, but we've given away freedom. We're now dealing with a 14-dimensional world. So let me just sum this up by saying between fundamental and emergent, standard model and GR, let's do GR. Fundamental is the metric. Emergent is the connection. Here in GU, it is the connection that's fundamental and the metric that's emergent. In the next unit of GU, so this is sort of the, the first unit of GU. Are there any quick questions having to do with confusion, or may I proceed to the next unit? Okay. The next unit of GU is the unified field content. What does it mean for our fields to become unified? There are, in fact, only at this moment two fields that know about x. Theta, which is the connection that we've just talked about, and a section, sigma, that takes us back so that we can communicate back and forth between u and x. We now need field content that only knows about u, which now has a metric depending on theta. A particular member of the audience is a hedge fund manager who taught me that there is something of a universal trade. And a universal trade has four components. You have to have a view, you have to have a trade expression, you have to be able to calculate your cost of carry, and you need a catalyst. Our view is going to be that somebody doesn't understand what trade is possible, and we're going to make a trade that looks like one of the worst trades of all time. And hopefully, if, we're, if we have enough conviction, we're going to have a catalyst to show that we actually got the better part of the deal. 
What is that trade? What is it that we think has been blocking progress? In GR, in Ramanian geometry, as we've said, we have the projection operators and we also have the Levi-Civita connection. In the auxiliary theory, we have freedom to choose our field content and we have the ability to get rid of much excess through the symmetries of the gauge group. We are going to take particle theory, and we're going to make a bad trade, or what appears to be a bad trade, which is that we are going to give away the freedom to choose our field content, which is already extremely, as I think I said in the abstract, Baroque, with all of the different particle properties. And we're going to lose the ability to use the gauge group because we're going to trade it all You have the family cow, and you have some magic beans. So it's now time to trade the family cow for the magic beans and bring them home and see whether or not we got the better of the deal. Okay. What is it that we get for the Levi-Civita connection? Well, not much. One thing we get is, is that normally the space of connections is an affine space, not a vector space, but an affine space, almost a vector space, a vector space up to a choice of origin. But with the Levi-Civita connection, rather than having an infinite plane with an ability to take differences but no real ability to have a group structure, you pick out one point which then becomes the origin. That means that any connection A has a torsion tensor A which is equal to the connection minus the Levi-Civita connection. So we get a tensor that we don't usually have Gauge potentials are not usually well-defined. They're only defined up to a choice of gauge. So that's one of the things we get for our Levi-Civita connection. But because the gauge group is going to go missing, this has terrible properties from, with respect to the gauge group. It almost looks like a representation. But in fact, if we let the gauge group act, there's going to be an affine shift. Furthermore, as we've said before, the ability to use projection operators together with the gauge group is frustrated by virtue of the fact that these two things do not commute with each other. So now the question is, how are we going to prove that we're actually making a good trade? Okay. First thing we need to do is, is that we still have the right to choose intrinsic field content. We have an intrinsic field theory. So if you consider the structure bundle of the spinners 
Right, we built the chimeric bundle so we can define Dirac spinners on the chimeric bundle. If we're in Euclidean signature, a 14-dimensional manifold has Dirac spinners of dimension 2 to the dimension of the space divided by 2. Right? So 2 to the 14 over 2, 2 to the 7th is 128. So we have a map into a structure group of U128. At least in Euclidean signature, we can get to mixed signatures later. From that, we can form the associated bundle And sections of this bundle are either, depending upon how you want to think about it, the gauge group H, or C, a space of sigma fields, nonlinear. There's no reason that we can't choose this as field content. Again, we're being led by the nose like a bull. If we want to make use of the symmetries of the theory, we have to promote some symmetry to being part of the theory, and we have to let it be subjected to dynamical laws. We're going to lose control over it. But we're not dead yet, right? We're fighting for our life to make sure that this trade has some hope. So potentially, by including symmetries as field content, we will have some opportunity to make use of the projection. So for those of you who so when I was thinking about this, I, I used to be amazed by ships and bottles. And I must confess that I never figured out what the trick was for ships and bottles. But once I saw it, I remembered thinking, that's really clever. So if you've never seen it, you have a ship which is like a curvature tensor. And imagine that the mast is, is the Ricci curvature. If you just try to shove it into the bottle, you're undoubtedly going to snap the mast. So you imagine that you've transformed your gauge fields. You've kept track of where the Ricci curvature was. You try to push it from one space, like add valued two forms, into another space, like add valued one forms, where connections live. That's not a good idea. Instead, what we do is the following. Imagine that you're carrying around group theoretic information. And what you do is you do a transformation based on the group theory. So you lower the mast. You push it through the neck, having some string attached to the mast. And then you undo the transformation on the other side. This is exactly what we're going to hope is going to save us in this bad trade that we've made. But because we're going to add field content that has the ability to lower the mass and bring the mass back up, we're going to hope to have a theory which is going to create a commutative situation. But then, once we've had this idea, we start to get a little bolder. Let's think about unified content. We know that we want a space of connections, A, for our field theory. But we know because we have a Levi-Civita connection that this is going to be equal on the nose 
to add valued one forms as a vector space. The gauge group represents an add valued one forms. So if we also have the gauge group, but we think of that instead as a space of sigma fields, what if we take the semi-direct product at a group theoretic level between the two and call this our group of interest? Well, by analogy, we've always had a problem with the Poincaré group being too intrinsically tied to rigid, flat Minkowski space. What if we wanted to do quantum field theory in some situation which was more amenable to a curved space situation? It's possible that we should be basing it around something more akin to the gauge group. And in this case, we're mimicking the construction where C here would be analogous to the Lorentz group, fixing a point in, in Minkowski space. And add-valued one forms would be analogous to the four momentums we take in the semi-direct product to create the inhomogeneous Lorentz group, otherwise known as the Poincaré group, or rather its double cover to allow spin. So we're going to call this the inhomogeneous gauge group, or IGI. And this is going to be a really interesting space because it has a couple of properties. One is it has a very interesting subgroup. Now, of course, H includes into G by just including onto the first factor. But in fact, there's a more interesting homomorphism brought to you by the Levi-Civita connection. So this magic bean trade is going to start to enter more and more into our consciousness. If I take an element H and I map that in the obvious way into the first factor, but I map it onto the Moro Cartan form, I think that's what I, I wish I remembered more of this stuff, into the second factor, it turns out that this is actually a group homomorphism. And so we have a non-trivial embedding, which is in some sense diagonal between the two factors. That subgroup we are going to refer to as the tilted gauge group. And now, our field content, at least in the bosonic sector, is going to be a group manifold, an infinite dimensional function space Lie group, but a group nonetheless. And we can now look at G mod the tilted gauge group. And if we have any interesting representation of H, we can form homogeneous vector bundles and work with induced representation. And that's what the fermions are going to be. So the fermions in our theories are going to be H modules. And the idea is that we're going to work with vector bundles, curly E, of the form inhomogeneous gauge group producted over the tilted gauge group Now, just as in the finite dimensional case, we have a linear and a nonlinear component, right? Because at the topological level, this is just a Cartesian product. 
So if we wish to take products of fermions, of spinorial fields, we have a place to accept them. We can't figure out necessarily how to map them into the nonlinear sector, but we don't want to. So just the way when we look at supersymmetry, we can take products of the spin one-half fields and map them into the linear sector, we can do the same thing here. So what we're talking about is something like a supersymmetric extension of the inhomogeneous gauge group analogous to supersymmetric extensions of the double cover of the inhomogeneous Lorentz or Poincaré group. Further, because this construction is at the level of groups, we've left a slot on the left-hand side on which to act. So for example, if we want to take regular representations on the group, we can act by the group G on the left-hand side because we're allowing the tilted gauge group to act on the right-hand side. So it's perfectly built for representation theory. And if you think back to Wigner's uh, classification and the concept that a particle should correspond to an irreducible representation of the inhomogeneous gauge group, uh, inhomogeneous Lorentz group, we may be able to play the same games here up to the issue of infinite dimensionality. So right now, our field content is looking pretty good. It's looking unified in the sense that it has an algebraic structure that is not usually enjoyed by field content, and the field content from different sectors can interact and know about each other, um, provided we can drag something of this, out of this with meaning. Now, what would it mean to be able to use a gauge group in an intrinsic theory like this? We would be talking about something like an action let's say a first order action, and it would take the group G, let's say to the real numbers, invariant, not under the full group, but under the tilted gauge subgroup. And now the question is, do we have any such actions that are particularly nice, and could we recognize them the way Einstein did by trying to write down not the action, and Hilbert was the first one to write that down, but I, you know, I always feel defensive uh, because I think Einstein and Grossman did so much more to begin the theory and that the Lagrangian that got written down was really just an inevitability. So just humor me for this talk and let me call it the Einstein-Grossman-Lagrangian. Uh, Hilbert's certainly done fantastic things and has a lot of credit elsewhere. And he did do it first. But here, what we, we had was that Einstein thought in terms of the differential of the action, not the action itself. So what we're looking for is equations of motion, or some field alpha, where alpha belongs to the one forms on the group. Now in this section of GU, unified field content is only one part of it. But what we really want is unified field content plus a toolkit. So we've restricted ourselves to one gauge group, this big unitary group on the spinners using whatever sort of inner product naturally exists on the spinners, and not spinners value in an auxiliary structure, but intrinsic spinners. 
The toolkit that we have is that the adjoint bundle looks like the Clifford algebra at the level of vector spaces, which is just looking like the exterior algebra on the chimeric bundle. That means that it's graded by degrees. The chimeric bundle has dimension 14, so there's a zero part, a one part, a two part, all the way up to 14. Plus, we have forms in the manifold. And so the question is, if I want to look at omega i valued in the adjoint bundle, there's going to be some element phi i which is pure trace. Right? Because it's the same representations appearing where in the usually auxiliary directions as well as the geometric directions. So we get an entire suite of invariants together with trivially uh, associated invariants that come from using the Hodge star operator on the form. So I'm just going to call them for completeness. We're not going to deal with them. Now, this is a tremendous amount of freedom that we've just gained. Normally, we keep losing freedom, but this is the first time we actually begin to see that we have a lot of freedom, and we're going to actually retain some of this freedom through the, to the end of the talk. But the idea being that I can now start to define operators which correspond to the ship in the bottle problem. I can take field content, epsilon and pi, where epsilon where these are elements of the inhomogeneous gauge group. In other words, epsilon is a, is a gauge transformation, and pi is, an, is a gauge potential. And I can start to define operators I'm use, so in this case, if I have a phi, which is one of these invariants, in the form piece, I can either take a contraction or I can take a wedge product. In the Lie algebra piece, I can either take a Lie product or because I'm looking at um, the unitary group, there's a second possibility, which is I can multiply everything by i and go from skew hermitian to hermitian and take a Jordan product using anti-commutators rather than commutators. So I actually have a fair amount of freedom, and I'm going to use a magic bracket notation, which in whatever situation I'm, I'm looking for knows what it wants to be. Does it want to do contraction? Does it want to do wedge product, Lie product, Jordan product? But the point is, I now have a suite of ways of moving forms around. So for example, I can define a Shiab operator that takes I-forms valued in the adjoint bundle to 
to much higher degree forms valued in the adjoint bundle. So for this, in this case, for example, it would take a two form to a d minus three plus two or a d minus one form. So curvature is an ad valued two form. And if I had such a Shiab operator, it would take ad valued two forms to ad valued d minus one forms, which is exactly the right space to be an alpha coming from the derivative of an action. And this is exactly what Einstein was doing. He took the curvature, which was large, and he bent it back and he, he sheared off the vial curvature, and they took that part and he pushed it back along the space of metrics to give us something which we nowadays call Ricci flow, an ability for the curvature to direct us to the next structure. Well, we're doing the same thing here. We're taking the curvature, and we can now push it back onto the space of connections. Three plus I. So in this case, the idea is, is that we've actually got something for our magic beans. We have an ability now to get equations of motion which go along the group in some sense. It's as if it was a gradient vector field, except we're using forms rather than vectors. But now, what are the transformation properties? Well. Because the curvature so you have Shiab because the curvature of a connection hit by a gauge transformation is equal on the nose. to the adjoint action on the Lie algebra of the curvature, we know that if we have two possible actions of conjugation under a bracket, and the bracket um, respects the action of the gauge group, we know that this is going to be well-preserved. In other words, we're going to get a form that is gauge invariant relative to the tilted gauge group. And so as a result, we now have the possibility for equations of motion, which are well-defined, uh, even though they involve projection operators, because we've built the symmetries into the theory, and we're working on a group manifold to begin with. What about the torsion? Can we rescue the torsion? Here again, we have good news. The torsion is problematic. But if I look at a different field, which I'm going to call the augmented torsion, and I define it to be the regular torsion, which would be pi, minus this expression, this turns out to be beautifully invariant again. 
So neither this term nor this term is gauge invariant, but they fail to be gauge invariant in exactly the same way. So an important principle of life, which I took too long to realize, is that if you have one disease, you're in real trouble. But if you have two diseases, you always have the possibility of having one disease kill the other disease. This is true in renormalization theory. It's true in Black-Scholes theory. It's true all over the place. So what we have here is we've got more diseases into the theory, but an even number of diseases allow us to have no disease at all. So now we have two great tensors. We've got one tensor coming from the curvature and the Shiab operator. We have another tensor coming from the torsion and its augmentation. We're doing okay. Okay. We're not doing physics yet. We're just building tools. We've built ourselves a little bit of freedom. We have some reprieves. We've still got some very big debts to pay back for this magic beans trade. We're in the wrong dimension. We don't have good field content. We're stuck on this one spinner. We've built ourselves some projection operators. We've picked up some symmetric nonlinear sigma field. What can we write down in terms of equations of motion? Let's start with Einstein's concept. If we do Shiab of the curvature tensor of a gauge potential, hit with an operator, defined by the epsilon uh, sigma field plus the star operator acting on the augmented torsion of the pair. This contains all of the information when pi is zero in Einstein's tensor. In other words, there is a spinorial analog of the vial curvature, a spinorial analog of the traceless Ricci curvature, and a spinorial analog of the scalar curvature. This operator should shear off the analog of the vial curvature just the way Einstein's projection shears off the vial curvature when you're looking at the tangent bundle. And this term, which is now gauge invariant, may be considered as containing a piece that looks like lambda times g mu nu, or a cosmological constant. And this piece here can be made to contain a piece that looks like Einstein's tensor. And so this looks very much like the vacuum field equations. But we have to add in something else. I'm going to be a little bit vague because I'm still giving myself some freedom as we write this up. But we're going to define whatever tensor we need for this term, these terms here. This is gauge invariant. This is gauge invariant. And this is gauge invariant with respect to the tilted gauge group. These two tensors together should be exact, and this tensor on its own should be exact. And we're going to call the exact tensor the swervature. 
So the particular Chiab operator we call the swerve. So that's swerve curvature plus the adjustment needed for exactness. And another gauge invariant term which is not usually gauge invariant. So that's pretty cool. If that works, we've now taken the Einstein equation and we've put it not on the space of metrics, but we've put a generalization and an analog on the space of gauge potentials much more amenable to quantization with much more algebraic structure and symmetry in the form of the inhomogeneous gauge group and its homogeneous vector bundle, some of which may be supersymmetric. Now the question is, we've, we've integrated so tightly with the matter fields, we have to ask ourselves the question, can we see unification here? Let's define matter content in the form of omega zero tensored in the spinners, which is a fancy way of saying spinners, together with a copy of the one forms tensored in the spinners. And let me come up with two other copies of the same data. So omega, omega d minus 1 just by duality. So imagine that there's a Hodge star operator. And uh, when I was a little kid, I had the Soma cube. I don't know if you ever played with one of these things. They're fantastic. And uh, I later found out that this guy who invented the Soma cube, which you had to put together pieces, there was one piece that looked like this, this object. And he was like this amazing guy in the resistance during World War II. So I would like to name this the somatic complex uh, after I guess his name is Piet Hein, I think. So this, this complex, I'm going to choose to start filling in some operators. The exterior derivative coupled to a connection, but in the case of spinners, we're going to put a slash through it. Let's make this the identity. We'd now like to come up with a second operator here. And this second operator here should have the property that the complex should be exact and the obstruction to it being a true complex to nil potency should be exactly the generalization of the Einstein equations, thus unifying the spinorial matter with the intrinsic replacement for the curvature equations. Well, we know that DA composed with itself is going to be the curvature. And we know that we want that to be hit by a Shiab operator. And if Shiab is a derivation, you can start to see that that's going to be curvature. So you want something like FA followed by Shiab over here to cancel. Then you think, OK, well, how am I going to get at getting this augmented torsion? And then you realize that the information in the inhomogeneous gauge group, you actually have information not for one connection, but for two connections. So in one case, I can do plus star to, to pick up the a sub pi 
But I'm also going to have a derivative operator if I just do a star operation. So I need another derivative operator to kill it off here. So I'm going to take minus the derivative with respect to the connection h inverse da naught h, which defines a connection one form as well as having the same derivative coming from the Levi-Civita connection on u. So in other words, I have two derivative operators here. I have two add-valued one forms. The difference between them is going to be of zeroth order, and it's going to be precisely the augmented torsion. And that's the same game I'm going to repeat here So I'm going to do the same thing here. I'm going to define a bunch of terms where in the numerator I'm going to pick up the pi as well as the derivative. In the denominator, because I have no derivative here, I'm going to pick up this h inverse da naught of h. I'm going to do that again on the other side. There are going to be plus and minus signs, but it's a magic bracket that knows whether or not it should be a plus sign or a minus sign, and I apologize for that, but I'm not able to keep that straight. And then there's going to be one extra term where all these t's have the epsilon and pi's. Okay, so some crazy series of differential operators on the northern route. So if you take the high road or you take the low road, when you take the composition of the two, the differential operators fall out, and you're left with an obstruction term that looks like the Einstein field equation. Well, that's pretty good, if true. Can you go farther? Well. Look at how close this field content is to the picture from deformation theory that we learned about in low dimensions. The low dimensional world works by saying that symmetries map to field content map to equations, usually in the curvature. And when you linearize that, if you're in low enough dimensions, you have Omega 0, omega 1, sometimes omega 0 again, and then something that comes from omega 2. And if you can get that sequence to terminate by looking at something like a half signature theorem or a bent back Duram complex in the case of dimension 3, you have an Atiyah Singer theory. And remember, we need some way to get out of infinite dimensional trouble. Right? You have to have someone to call when things go wrong overseas, and you have to be able to get your way home. And in some sense, we call on Atiyah and Singer and say we're in some infinite dimensional space. Can't you cut out some finite dimensional problem that we can solve, even though we start getting ourselves into serious trouble? And so we're going to do the same thing down here. We're going to have omega 0 add, omega 1 add, direct sum, omega 0 add, Let me 
omega d minus 1, add. And it's almost the same operators. And this is now not just a great guess. It's actually the information for the deformation theory of the linearized replacement of the Einstein field equations. So this is computing the Zariski tangent space just as if you were doing self-dual theory or Chern-Simons theory. You've got two somatic complexes, right? One of them is Bose, one of them is Fermi. The obstruction to both of them is a common generalization of the Einstein field equations. What's more is if you, if you start to think about this, this is some version of Hodge theory with funky operators. So you can ask yourself, well, what are the harmonic forms in a fractional spin context? Well, they're different depending upon whether you take the degree zero piece together with the degree two piece or you take the degree one piece. Let's just take the degree one piece. You get some kind of equation. So I'm going to decide that I have a zeta field, which is an omega one tensor spinners, and a field nu, which always strikes me as a Yiddish field. Nu is omega zero tensor s, okay? What equation would they solve if we were doing Hodge theory relative to this complex? The equation would look something like this. There'd be one equation that was very simple, and then there'd be one equation that would be like really hard to guess. Gosh, I, I hope I'm not screwing this up, but um, you know, look, all these boards, and I still feel like I'm managing to run out of room. Now, if you have something like that, that would be a hell of a Dirac equation, right? You've got differential operators over here. You've got differential operators um, 
I guess I didn't write them in. But you would have two differential operators over here, and you'd have this differential operator coming from this Mora Cartan form. So I apologize, I'm being a little loose here. But the idea is you have two of these terms are zeroth order, three of these terms would be first order, and on this side, one term would be first order. Um, and that's not there. That's a, that was a mistake. Oh, no, sorry. That was a mistake, calling it a mistake. These are two separate equations, right? So you have two separate fields, nu and zeta, and you have a coupled set of differential equations that are playing the role of the Dirac theory, coming from the Hodge theory of a complex whose obstruction to being cohomology theory would be the replacement to the Einstein field equations, which would be rendered gauge invariant on a group relative to a tilted subgroup. Okay, what would, so now we've dealt with two of the three sectors. Is there any generalization of the Yang-Mills equation? Well, if we were to take the Einstein field equation generalization and take the norm square of it, oh, there's some point I should make here, just one second. I've been treating this as if everything is first order. But what really happens here is that you've got symmetries, you've got symmetric field content, you've got ordinary connections, and we're neglecting to draw the fact that there have to be equations here too. These equations are first order. So why do we get to call this a first-order theory if there are equations here which are of second order? Well, it's not a pure first-order theory, but when I say a first-order theory in this context, what I really mean is that the second-order equations are completely redundant on the first-order equations by virtue of the symmetry principle. That is, any solution of the first-order equations should automatically imply a solution of the second-order equations. So from that perspective, I can pretend that this isn't here because it is sufficient to solve the first order equations. So I can now look, let's call that entire replacement, which we previously called alpha. I'm going to set alpha equal to upsilon because I've actually been using upsilon the portion of it that is just the first order equations and take the norm square of that. That gives me a new Lagrangian. And if I solve that new Lagrangian, it leads to equations of motion that look like exactly what we said before. And it ends up defining an operator that looks something like this, da star the adjoint of the Shiab operator so in other words this piece gives you some portion that looks like 
right, from the, the Swervature tensor, there's going to be some component that's playing the role of Einstein's field equations directly, the Ricci tensor, but generalized. And then you're going to have some differential operator here so that the replacement for the Yang-Mills term, instead of dA star of FA, you've got these two Shiab and, Shiab and an adjoint Shiab together in the center, generalizing the Yang-Mills theory. Then you say, well, how come we don't just see the Yang-Mills theory? Why don't we see general relativity as well? But in the full expansion, there's also a term that's zeroth order, that's effectively acting like the identity, which hits this as well. So you have one piece that looks like the Yang-Mills theory, and in these second-order equations, you also have a piece that looks like the Einstein theory. And this is in the vacuum equations. So then the question is, how do you see the Dirac theory coming out of this? And so what we're just trying to put together now before we come out with the manuscript for this is putting these two elliptic complexes together, the Dirac terms go between the two complexes, right? So the idea is that the stress-energy tensor should be the up and back term, and the Dirac equations should come out of the term that goes up and over versus the term that goes over and up. And you need some cancellations to make sure that everything is of zeroth order, properly invariant, et cetera. And that's taking a little time because, frankly, I'm not good at keeping track of indices, minus signs, left, right. It's a, it's a learning-disabled nightmare. So, we've got one more unit to go. I mean, there's a, a fifth unit that has to do with mathematical applications, but this is sort of a physics talk for today. Is there any questions before we go into the last unit and then really handle questions for real? All right, let me show you the next little bit. We've got problems. We're not in four dimensions, we're in 14. We don't have great field content because we've just got these unadorned spinners, and we're doing gauge transformations effectively on the intrinsic geometric quantities, not on some safe auxiliary data that's tensor producted with, with what our, 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 uh, our spinners are. How is it that we're going to find anything realistic? And then we have to remember everything we've been doing recently has been done on you. We've forgotten about x. How does all of this look to x? So x is sitting down here, and all the action is happening up here on u14. There's a projection operator. I've used pi twice. It's not here the field contents, just projection. And I've got a sigma, which is a, a section. What does zeta pulled back or new pulled back look like on x4? Okay, 
let's try to think about how we would come up with this field content starting from first principles. Let's imagine that there's nothing to begin with. Then you have one copy of matter, whatever it is that we see in our world, the first generation. In order for that to become interesting, it has to have an equation, so it has to get mapped somewhere. Then we see the muon and all the rest of the matter that comes with it. We have a second generation. Then in the mid-1970s, Pearl finds the tau particle, and we start to get panicked that we don't understand what's going on. One thing we can do is we could move these equations around a little bit and move the equation for the first generation back. And then we could start adding particles. Let's imagine that we could guess what particles we'd add. We'd add a pseudo-generation of 16 <coughs> particles, spin three halves, never before seen, not necessarily superpartners, but Rarita Schwinger matter with familiar internal quantum numbers, but potentially so that they're flipped, so that matter looks like antimatter to this generation. Then we add, just for the heck of it, 144 spin one-half fermions, which contain a bunch of particles with familiar quantum numbers, but also some very exotic-looking particles that nobody's ever seen before. Now we start doing something different. We make an accusation. One of our generations isn't a regular generation. It's an imposter. At low energy, in a cooled state, potentially it looks just the same as these other generations. But were we somehow able to turn up the energy, imagine that it would unify differently with this new matter that we've posited, rather than simply unifying onto itself. So two of the generations would unify unto themselves, but this third generation would fuse with the new particles that we've already added. We consolidate geometrically. We can add some zeroth order terms. And we imagine that there are, is an elliptic complex that would govern the state of affairs. We then choose to add some stuff that we can't see at all, that's dark. And this matter would be governed by forces that were dark too. There might be dark electromagnetism and dark strong and dark weak. It might be that things break in that sector completely differently and it doesn't break down to an SU3 cross SU2 cross U1 because these are different SU3s, SU2s, and U1s. And it may be that there would be like a high energy SU5, you know, or some Petit uh, Salam model. Imagine then that chirality was not fundamental but it was emergent, that you had some complex, and as long as there were cross terms, these two halves would talk to each other. But if the cross terms went away, the two terms would become decoupled. And just the way we have a left hand and we have a right hand, and you ask me, right, imagine you have a neurological condition in an Oliver Sacks sort of an idiom, and somebody's only aware of one side of their body, and they say, oh my god, I'm deformed, I'm asymmetric, right? But we actually have a symmetry between the two things that can't see each other. Then we would still have a chiral world, but the chirality wouldn't be fundamental. There'd be something else keeping the fermions light. And that would be the absence of the cross terms. Now, if you look at what happens in our replacement for the Einstein field equations, the term that would counterbalance the scalar curvature, if you put these equations on a sphere, 
they wouldn't be satisfied if the T term had a zero expectation value because there would be non-trivial scalar curvature in the, in the swervature terms, but there'd be nothing to counterbalance it. So it's fundamentally the scalar curvature that would coax the VEV on the augmented torsion out of the vacuum to have a non-zero level. And if you pumped up that sphere and it smeared out the curvature, which you can't get rid of because of topological considerations, so let's say from Chernvay theory, you would have a very diffuse, very small term. And that term would be the term that was playing the role of the cosmological constant. So in a large universe, you'd have a curvature that was spread out, and things would be very light, and things would get very dark due to the absence of curvature linking the sectors. And that turns out to be exactly our complex. So in other words, just to recap, starting with nothing other than a four-manifold, we built a bundle U. The bundle U had no metric, but it almost had a metric. It had a metric up to a connection. There was another bundle on top of that bundle called the chimeric bundle. The chimeric bundle had an intrinsic metric. We built our spinners on that. We restricted ourselves to those spinners. We moved most of our attention to the emergent metric on U14, which gave, gave us a map between the chimeric bundle and the tangent bundle of U14. We built a toolkit allowing us to choose symmetric field content to define equations of motion on the cotangent space of that field content, to form a homogeneous vector bundle with the fermions, to come up with unifications of the Einstein field equations, Yang-Mills equations, and Dirac equations. We then broke those things apart under decomposition, pulling things back from U14, and we found a three-generation model where nothing has been put in by hand, and we have a 10-dimensional normal component, which looks like the spin 10 theory. I can tell you where there are problems in this story. I can tell you that when we move from Euclidean metric to Minkowski metric, we seem to be off by a sign somewhere, or I could be mistaken. I could tell you that the propagation in 14 dimensions has to be worked out so that we would be fooled into thinking we were in a four-dimensional world. There are lots of things to ask about this theory. But I find it remarkable that tying our hands, we find ourselves with new equations, unifications, and three generations in a way that seems surprisingly rich, certainly unexpected, um, and I think I'll stop there. Thank you very much for your time. So thanks for watching that video. What I thought I would do, since uh, that was the first time I'd really presented the theory at all in public, and I'd gotten somewhat turned around on my trip to England and trying uh, probably stupidly to do last-minute corrections got me a bit confused in a few places, and I wrote some things on the board I probably shouldn't have. I thought I would try a partial explainer for technically oriented people so that they're not mystified by the video. Um, and any errors here are my own. Uh, I'm known to make many, so 
Uh, hopefully they won't be too serious, but we'll find out. So this is a supplementary explainer for the Geometric Unity talk at Oxford that you just saw. First of all, I think the most important thing to begin with is to ask what new hard problems arise when you're trying to think about a fundamental theory that aren't found in any earlier theory. Now, every time you have an effective theory, which is a partial theory, there is always the idea that you can have recourse to a lower level strata. So you don't have to explain in some sense everything coming from very little or nothing. I think that the really difficult issue that people don't talk enough about is the problem of the fire that lights itself. And I think this was beautifully demonstrated by M.C. Escher in his famous lithograph, Drawing Hands, where he takes the idea of the canvas or the paper as a given, but somehow he imagines that the canvas could will into existence the ink needed to draw the hands that move the pen that draw the hands. Um, that concept is actually the super tricky part, in my opinion, about going from effective theories to any attempt at a fundamental theory. So, with that said, what I want to think about is what antecedents does this concept have in physics? And I find that there really aren't any candidate um, theories of everything or unified field theories that I can find that plausibly give us an idea of how a canvas would will uh, an entire universe into being. And so that really, to me, is the conceptual problem that I think bedevils this and makes uh, this step quite a bit more difficult than some of the previous technical steps. If you ask for antecedents, however, there is one that at least within physics is relatively famous, and that is by John Archibald Wheeler. And it is a picture, in some sense, of the universe contemplating itself. And so this idea that somehow the universe would contemplate itself into existence, uh, maybe the letter U is in some sense analogous to the paper, and somehow the eye, uh, rather than the hand, uh, is drawn across to look at a different part of the, of the U. And whether or not that has meaning is intrinsically always a question. People are animated by it, but I don't know that people have actually worked on it. The quote of Einstein's, I think, that really speaks to me often the most, and maybe even was my thesis problem, was uh, he asked whether the creator had any choice in how the universe was constructed. And so I think if you believe that the canvas is itself um, the... Uh, that which generates um, all of the content and all of the action, you're, you're left with a puzzle as to how would you move forward from this. It might be easier in a mathematical sense uh, to temporarily put the U on its back to put it more in line with a standard picture that many mathematicians and physicists will be familiar with. In sector one of the geometric uh, unity theory, space-time is replaced and recovered by the observers contemplating itself. And so there are several sectors of GU, and I wanted to go through uh, at least four of them. In Einstein's space-time, we have not only four degrees of freedom, but also a space-time metric representing rulers and protractors. If we're going to replace that, it's very tricky because it's almost impossible to think about what would be underneath Einstein's theory. Uh, 
Now, there's a huge problem in the spinorial sector, which I don't know why more people don't worry about, which is that spinners aren't defined for representations of the double cover of GL4R, the general linear group's uh, effective spin analog. And as such, if we imagine that we will one day quantize gravity, we will lose our definition not of the electrons, but let's say of the medium in which the electrons operate. That is, there will be no spinorial bundle until we have an observation of a metric. So one thing we can do is to take a manifold XD as the starting point and see if we can create an entire universe from no other data, not even with a metric. So since we don't choose a metric, what we instead do is to work over the space of all possible pointwise metrics. So not quite in the Feynman sense, but in the sense that um, we will work over a bundle that is of a quite larger, of quite a bit larger dimension. So for example, if X uh, was four-dimensional, therefore D equals four, then Y in this case would be D squared, which would be 16, plus 3D, which would be 12, making 28, divided by 2, which would be 14. So in other words, a four-dimensional universe, or sorry, a four-dimensional proto-spacetime, not a spacetime, but a proto-spacetime with no metric, would give rise to a 14-dimensional um, observers portion called Y. Now, I believe that in the lecture in... Um, Oxford, I called that U. So I'm sorry for the confusion, but of course this shifts around every time I take it out of the garage, and that's one of the problems with working on a theory in solitude for many years. So we have two separate spaces, and we have fields on the two spaces. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to refer to fields on the XD space by Hebrew letters. So instead of G mu nu for a metric, I just wrote uh, Gimel Mem Nun. And the idea being that I want to separate Latin and Greek fields on the Y space from the uh, rather rarer field that actually live directly on X. So this is a little bit confusing. One way of thinking about it is to think of the observers as the stands plus the pitch in a stadium. I think I may have said that in the, in the lecture. But this is what replaces the questions of where and when in the newspaper story that is a fundamental theory. Where and when correspond to space and time, who and what correspond to bosons and fermions, and how and why correspond to um, equations and the Lagrangian that generates them. So if you think about those six quantities, you'll realize that that's really what the content of a fundamental theory is, assuming that it can be quantized properly. Most fields, uh, and in this case we're gonna call the collection of two tuples, um, omega. So inside of omega, that will be, in the first tuple, we'll have epsilon and pi, written a, a sort of a, a non-traditional variation of how we write the symbol for pi. In the second tuple, we'll have the letters uh, nu and zeta. And I would like them not to move because they honor particular people who are important. So most fields, in this case omega, um, are dancing on y which was called U in the lecture, unfortunately. But they're observed via pullback as if they lived on X. In other words, if you're sitting in the stands, you might feel that you're actually literally on the pitch, even though that's not true. So what we've done is we've taken the U of Wheeler, we've put it on its back and created a W structure. 
And the W structure is meant to say that there's a bundle on top of a bundle. Again, geometric unity is more flexible than this, but I wanted to make the most concrete approach to this possible for at least this introduction. And sometimes um, we, don't, we don't need to state that Y would in fact be a bundle. Uh, it could be an immersion of X into any old manifold, but I, I'd like to go with the most ambitious version of GU first. So the two projection maps are pi 2 and pi 1. And what we're going to say up top is, is that we're going to have a, uh, a symbol Z and an action of a group rho uh, on Z standing in for any bundle associated to the principal bundle, which is generated as the unitary bundle of the, spin, of the spinners on the chimeric tangent bundle to Y. That's a bit of a mouthful, but the key issue was that on the manifold Y, there happens to be a bundle which is isomorphic non-canonically to the tangent bundle of Y, which can, uh, has a definite um, and canonical metric. And in fact, there, that carries the spinners. So this is the way in which we get spinners without ever having to choose a metric, but we pick up some technical debt to use the computer science concept by actually having to now work on two different spaces, X and Y, and we're not merely working on X anymore. This leads to the mark of Zorro. That is, we know that whenever we have a metric, by the fundamental theorem of Riemannian geometry, we always get a connection. It happens, however, that what is missing to turn the canonical um, chimeric bundle on Y into the tangent bundle of Y is in fact a connection on the space X. So there is one way in which we've reversed the fundamental theorem of Riemannian geometry where a connection on X leads to a metric on Y. So if we do the full transmission mechanism out, uh, Gimel on X leads to alpha sub Gimel for the Levi-Civita connection on X. Alpha sub Gimel leads to uh, G sub alpha, which is, or uh, sorry, G sub aleph, um, I'm not used to using Hebrew uh, in, in math. Um, so G sub aleph uh, then is a metric on Y, and that creates a Levi-Civita connection of the metric on the space Y as well, which then be, induces one on the spinorial bundles. In sector two, the inhomogeneous gauge group on Y replaces the Poincaré group and the internal symmetries that are found on X. And in fact, you use a fermionic extension of the inhomogeneous gauge group to replace the supersymmetric Poincaré group. And that would be with the field content, zero forms tensored, and spinner, tensored with spinners, uh, direct sum one forms tensored with spinners all up on Y as the fermionic field content. So that gets rid of the biggest problem because the internal symmetry group is what causes the failure, I think, of supersymmetric particles to be seen in nature, which is we have two, two different origin stories, which is a little bit like Lilith and, uh, and Genesis. Um, we can't easily say we have a unified theory if space-time and the SU3 cross SU2 cross U1 group that lives on space-time have different origins and cannot be related. In this situation, we tie our hands and we have no choice over the, the uh, group content. So just to fix bundle notation, we let H um, be the structure group of a bundle, P sub H over a base space B. We use pi um, 
for the projection map. We've reserved the variation in the pi um, orthography for the field content. And we try to use right principal actions. I'm terrible with left and right, but we do our best. Uh, we use H here, not G, because we want to reserve G for the inhomogeneous extension of H once we move to function spaces. So with function spaces, we can um, take the bundle of groups using the adjoint action of H uh, on itself and form the associated bundle and then move to C infinity sections to get the so-called gauge group of automorphisms. We have a space of connections typically denoted by A and we're going to promote uh, omega one uh, tensored in the adjoint bundle to uh, notation of script N uh, as the affine group, which acts directly on the um, space of connections. Uh, okay. Now, the inhomogeneous gauge group is formed as the semi-direct product of the gauge group of automorphisms together with the affine group of translations of the space of connections. And you can see here is a version of an explicit group multiplication rule. I hope I got that one right. And then we have an action of G, that is the inhomogeneous gauge group, on the space of connections because we have two different ways to act on connections. We can either act by gauge trans, uh, transformations or we can act by affine translations. So putting them together gives us uh, something for the inhomogeneous gauge group to do. We then get a bi-connection. In other words, because we have two different ways of pushing a connection around, if we have a choice of a base connection, we can push the base connection around in two different ways according to the portion of it that is uh, coming from the gauge transformations, uh, curly H, or the affine translations coming from curly N. We can call this map the bi-connection, which gives us two separate connections for any point in the uh, inhomogeneous gauge group. And we can notice that it uh, can be viewed um, as a, uh, a section of a bundle over the base space to come when we find an interesting embedding of the gauge group that is not the standard one in the inhomogeneous gauge group. So our summary diagram looks something like this. Uh, take a look at the tau sub a naught. We will find a homomorphism of the gauge group into its inhomogeneous extension that isn't simply inclusion onto the first factor. We, um, and I'm realizing that I have the wrong pi, that should just be a simple pi uh, projecting down. We have a map from the inhomogeneous gauge group uh, via the bi connection to A cross A, connections cross connections, and that that behaves well according to the difference operator delta that takes the difference of two connections and gives an honest add valued one form. Okay, the infinitesimal action of the gauge transformation, of a gauge transformation, or at least an infinitesimal one, on a point inside of the group is given by a somewhat almost familiar expression which should remind us of how the first term in the gauge deformation complex um, for self-dual Yang-Mills actually gets started. And so by acting via this um, interesting uh, embedding of the inhomogeneous gauge group on, sorry, 
the embedding of the gauge group inside its inhomogeneous extension, but the non-trivial one, we get something very close to the original first step of the two-step deformation complex. Now, in sector three, there are payoffs to the magic beans trade. The big issue here is, is that we've foregone the privilege of being able to choose and dial in our own field content. And we've decided to remain restricted to anything we can generate only from XD, in this case, X4. So we generated Y14 from X4, and then we generated chimeric tangent bundles uh, on top of that. We built spinners off of the chimeric tangent bundle, and we have not made any other choices. So we're dealing with, I think it's U128, um, U, U2 to the seventh. That is our uh, structure group, and we it's fixed by the choice of X4, not anything else. So what do we get? Well, as promised, there is a tilted homomorphism, um, which uh, takes the gauge group into its inhomogeneous extension. It acts as inclusion on the first factor, but it uses the Levi-Civita connection to create a second sort of more Cartan form. I hope I remember the terminology right. It's been a long time. Um, the map is injective because it's injective onto the first factor, but it actually gives us a non-trivial embedding of the uh, gauge group in its inhomogeneous extension, which makes the, the whole theory work. We then get to Shiab operators. Now, a Shiab operator um, is a map from the group cross the ad-valued I-forms. Uh, in this case, the particular Shiab operators we're interested in is mapping I-forms to D minus 3 plus I-forms. So for example, uh, it would map a two-form to uh, D minus 3 plus I. So if D, for example, were um, 14, then um, and, and I were equal to 2, then 14 minus 3 is equal to 11, uh, plus 2 is equal to 13, so that would be uh, an ad-valued uh, 14 minus 1 form, which is exactly the right place for something to form a current, that is, the differential of a Lagrangian on the space. Now, the augmented torsion. The torsion is a very strange object. It's introduced sort of right at the beginning of learning... Uh, differential geometry, but it really doesn't get used very much. One of the reasons it doesn't get used in gauge theory is that it's not gauge invariant. It has a gauge invariant piece to it, but then a piece that spoils the gauge invariant. But we, because we have two connections, one of the ideas was to introduce two diseases and then to take a difference. And as long as the disease is the same in both, um, the difference will not have the disease because both diseases are included, but with a minus sign between them. So the augmented torsion is relatively well-behaved relative to this particular uh, slanted or tilted embedding of the gauge group in its inhomogeneous extension. Which, this is very nice because now we actually have a, a use for the torsion. We have an understanding of why it may never have figured, particularly into geometry, is that you need two, of, two connections rather than one to see the advantages of torsion at all. So here's an example of one ship in a bottle operator. I think this would be sort of analogous, if I'm not mistaken, to trying to take the Ricci curvature from the entire uh, Riemann curvature. 
But if you think about what Einstein did, Einstein had to go further and reduce the Ricci curvature to the scalar curvature and then uh, sort of dial the components of the traceless Ricci and the scalar curvature to get the right proportions. So um, there are many Shiab operators and you have to be very careful about which one you want. And once you know exactly what it is you're trying to hit, you can choose the Shiab operator to be bespoke um, and get the contractions that you need. Now, I've, I've made you guys sit through a lot, so I wanted to give you um, sort of humorously a, uh, a feeling um, of positivity for the exhaustion. So, the years of anxious searching in the dark with their intense longing, their intense alternations of confidence and exhaustion and the final emergence into the light, only those who have experienced it can understand it. I've just always thought this was like the most sensitive and beautiful quote, and I wish it were one of his better known quotes, but I think it's so singular that it's hard to, it's hard to feel what it was that he was talking about because, in fact, he sort of explains this in the last line. So given that you've been on a long journey, here is something of what uh, geometric unity equations might look like. So in the first place, you have the swerved curvature, the Shiab applied to the curvature tensor. That, in general, does not work out to be exact, so you can't have it as the differential of a Lagrangian. And in fact, we talk about swirls, swerves, twirls, eddies. Um, there has to be a quadratic eddy tensor that uh, I occasionally forget when I pull this thing out of mothballs. And the two of those together make up what I call the total swervature. And on the other side of the equation, you have the displaced torsion, which I've called the displasion. Um, and to get rid of the pesky sort of minus sign and Hodge star operator, um, this would be the replacement for the Einstein equation, not on X, where we would perceive it, but on Y before being pulled back onto the manifold X. So a condensation of that would be very simple. In simplest terms, we would be saying that the swervature is equal to the, to the displasion. And at least in this sector of the four main equations of theoretical physics, this would be the replacement for the Einstein equations, again, on Y before being pulled back to X. Next is the sketch of the fermionic field content. I'm not sure whether that should have been sector four or sector three, but it's going to be very brief. Uh, I showed some pictures during the lecture, and I'm not going to go back through them, but I wanted to just give you an idea of where this mysterious third generation, I think, comes from. So if we review the three uh, identities here, we see that if we have a space V thought of like as a tangent bundle, and then you have spinners built on the tangent bundle. When you product tensor product the uh, tangent bundle with its own spinners, it breaks up into two pieces. One piece is the so-called Cartan product, which is sort of the sum of the highest weights, and the other is a second copy of the spinners gotten through the Clifford contraction. So that's well known, but now what I think fewer people know, many people know that the spinners have a sort of an exponential property. That is, the spinners of a direct sum are the tensor product of the spinners of the two summands of the direct sum. So that's a very nice sort of version of an exponential. An exponential would take a sum and turn it into a product. Um, what happens when you're trying to think about 
a tangent space in Y is being broken up into a tangent space along an immersed X together with its normal bundle. So imagine that X and Y are the tangent space to X and a normal bundle. So the Rorita Schwinger piece, that is the spin three halves piece, has a funny kind of an almost uh, exponential property. That is the Rorita Schwinger uh, content of a direct sum of vector spaces is equal to the Rorita Schwinger of the first uh, tensor product did with the ordinary spinners in the second, direct sum with the ordinary spinners in the first, tensor product did with the Ricci, with the, sorry, the Rorita Schwinger content of the second sum and. But then there's this extra interesting term, which is the spinners on the first sum and, tensor product did with the spinners on the second sum and. Now, recalling that um, when I started my career, we did not know that neutrinos were massive, and I figured that they probably had to be massive because I desperately wanted a 16-dimensional space of internal quantum numbers, not 15, because my, my ideas only work if the space of internal quantum numbers is of dimension 2 to the n. And uh, one of my favorite equations at the time was 15 equals 2 to the 4th. Uh, not literally true, but almost true. And thankfully, in the late 1990s, uh, the case for uh, 16 particles in a generation was strengthened when neutrinos were found to have mass. But that remaining term in the southeast corner, the uh, spinners on X, tensor spinners on Y, looks like the term above it in line 2.15. And that, in fact, is the third generation of matter, in my opinion. That is, it is not a true generation. It is broken off and would unify very differently if we were able to heat the universe to the proper temperature. So, starting to sum up, this is not the full theory. I'm just presenting this in part to dip my toe back into the water. It's a daunting task to try to address uh, people about something you've been thinking about for a long time and have no idea whether it's even remotely correct. This is the Einsteinian replacement, and it must be pulled back to X. That's the first thing. The Yang-Mills-Maxwell piece comes from a direct square of the Einstein replacement. That is, I don't believe that we're really looking for a unifying equation. I think we're looking for a unifying Dirac square. Dirac famously took the square root of the Klein-Gordon equation, and he gave us um, the Dirac equation. And in fact, I believe that the Dirac equation and the Einstein equation are to be augmented and fit into the square root part of a Dirac square. And I believe that the Yang-Mills content and Higgs version of the Klein-Gordon equation would go in the square part of the Dirac square. So two of these equations unify differently than two others, and the two pairs are unified in the content of a Dirac square. Um, the Dirac piece will be done separately elsewhere when, I, when we get around to it uh, and contains the Rorita Schwinger field content, which is fundamental and new. There are only two generations in this model. I think people have um, accepted that there are three, but I don't believe that there are three. I think that there are two and that the third unifies with other matter at higher energies. The quartic Higgs piece comes from the Dirac squaring of a quadratic. Remember, there's a, an eddy tensor, which is quadratic in the augmented torsion. 
The metric does multiple duties uh, here is it's the main field in this version of GU with the sort of strongest assumptions as field content on that is originally on X, um, whereas most of the rest of the field content is on Y, but it also acts as the observer pulling back the full content of Y uh, onto X to be interpreted as if it came from X all along, generating the internal the, the sort of illusion of internal quantum numbers. And I should say that the Petit-Salam theory, which is usually advertised as, I think, SU4 cross SU2 cross SU2, is really much more naturally spin 6 cross spin 4, uh, when the trace portion of the space of metrics is put in with the proper sign if you're trying to generate the sector that begins as x1 comma 3. Remember, xd, where x where d equals 4, uh, is the generic situation. But you have all these different sectors. I believe that these sectors probably exist if this model is correct. But we are trapped in the 1, 3 sector, so you have to figure out what the implications are for pushing that uh, indefinite signature up into an indefinite signature on the y manifold. And uh, there are signatures that make it look like the Petit Salam rather than the, uh, directly in the spin 10 SU5 line of thinking. So we will attempt to present the full theory shortly. And shortly, keep in mind, this took seven years to just uh, bring me to want to come back to this. But it must be reassembled from decades of notes. And that's part of the problem when you're working alone and you're not really expecting to talk to anybody. So I want to thank you for your patience and your time. And I just want to read a bunch of names of people who matter to me. And if I've done anything wrong, uh, this is not no reflection on them. Marcus DeSotoy, Peter Thiel, Isidore Singer, Raoul Bott, Michael Grossberg, Adil Abdulali, Harry and Sophie Rubin, Brett Weinstein and family, Heather Hying and Zach and Toby, Peter Fried, Scott Axelrod, Nima Arkani Hamed, Louise Alvarez Game, Edward Frankel, Dror Barnatan, Shlomo Sternberg, David Kajdan, Daniel Barquet, Karen and Les Weinstein, Haynes Miller, Ralph Gomery, John Tate, Sidney Coleman, Graham Siegel, Robert Herman, and here in Esther Milani. Uh, errors and omissions, because I have too many people to thank, are, um, are all my own. As, as for the claims, it should reflect badly on no one else other than myself. And most especially, I just want to say that I've asked a tremendous amount from my family to stick with me on this quixotic quest. Um, and I want to thank Pia Milani, Nyla Weinstein, and Zev Weinstein. I love you all very much, and thank you for making this possible. Uh, I do want to leave you with one thought. I really think that we've gotten completely bent out of shape about trying to fort, uh, formalize and routinize science, and it doesn't work. You cannot mandate science as social engineering. You can't decide that science is always in the zeitgeist and done by committee. In fact, it is essential to understand that science will not conform to what you want. One of the things that I, I'm very proud of, and I think is tr quite true, um, is the saying that great science uh, has the scientific method as its radio edit. I don't think that great science is actually done the way we say it's done. And I think that Dirac's 1963 Scientific American article should be read by absolute, absolutely everyone. Every time major theories have come out, they've almost always been wrong. But they're not wrong in an important way. And I think that we have to fix the political economy of people racing 
to correct theories or point out that there is no agreement with the experiment. We are killing many of our best ideas by creating a terrible and combative environment which already attempts to apportion credit for work and more importantly risk uh, undertaken by individuals. And I just think that I, I want people to understand that I've always wanted to share this, but I've, I, I detest the culture that I saw that cropped up around what has now become known as the Cyber-Witten equations. When they were put forward, there was a period of time where I watched people uh, as if at a feeding trough, uh, trying to stay up around the clock to use a new machine tool that had been given to them to claim credit. And it profoundly pushed me away from the community. We have to become more ethical, and we have to honor the people who are trying to speak and act imaginatively. Now, if this doesn't work, if it's silly, uh, I'll have egg on my face and I'll go on, I'll be fine. But I'm very worried that maybe that some of the best ideas are between the ears of people without the confidence and the chutzpah and just the sort of almost psychotic drive to push things across the finishing line. We've got to be kinder and nicer and more decent and stop stealing people's lives, their credit, their future, uh, and their ability to have families and make a living. And that's absolutely essential to me. And I look forward to finding out whether this theory has merit to it or is without merit. But I guarantee that if I'm going to go down with the ship, I'm also not going to be knocked off the ship as I was many years ago, completely unfairly. And I won't dwell on it, but the amount of power you professors have is absolutely um, almost without parallel because nobody really understands enough to adjudicate disputes that happen in academics. I'm going to insist that we fund you better and that you are nicer to the people who depend upon you in this beautiful chain that we call uh, science, scientific method, and most particularly uh, American science, which I think is still the envy of the world. So you've been through the portal. I know it was a long slog. I hope you found it interesting and enjoyable, and we'll see you again soon. Be well, everybody. Stay safe.